0: So I've been teaching through the book of Romans. I tell you this is one of my favorite things to teach on and this is powerful. We're in Romans chapter 4 now and the very first thing that was said in Romans 4 he used Abraham as an example to show that Abraham didn't have a relationship with God based on his holiness and I don't mean this in any way to discredit Abraham but Abraham was not a really holy guy. He did some terrible things with his wife, lied about her twice. He married a half-sister which was not God's will according to Leviticus chapter 18. And Abraham went in and had relationships with his wife's uh, slave and I'll be dealing with that more in a moment, but I mean Abraham wasn't the greatest example of holiness. The scripture is using him to show that Abraham who was of course it calls him the father of faith for us all in the New Testament. Abraham was a man that had relationship with God by faith, not because he did everything right. And it's amazing how people have missed this. And so in verse 13, this is Romans chapter 4, verse 13, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. There it is in black and white. Abraham did not have relationship with God through keeping some set of laws, through doing certain things, but it was because he believed God and that was counted unto him for righteousness. You do not have to live holy in order to be accepted by God. Man, that is a powerful, powerful truth. So again, going back to Romans chapter 4, it says in verse 14, For if they which are of the law be heirs... Faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. What a powerful scripture that is. Today, if people are trying to become uh, you know, established in their relationship with God through your own holiness and you doing all of these good works, then you make faith void and the promise, all of these New Testament promises of healing, deliverance, salvation, prosperity, anything else that God has done. You void the promises through your legalism. And you know, this is exactly what's happening to so many people. I know this is true because in my meetings I've had people come by the thousands who come up to me and they'll say, I don't know why God hasn't healed me. i fasted. I've paid my tithes. I go to church. I'm living the best life I can possibly live. Why hasn't God healed me? When a person says something like that, they've just communicated to me why God had not healed them. Because, see, they didn't point to what Jesus did for them. They pointed to what they have been doing for Jesus. Their faith is in themselves. That's what the Bible here is calling law. You are trying to be in right standing with God through the law. Many of you don't realize you're in law, but that's what it is. The only thing that is necessary for your relationship with God is for you to put faith in Jesus as your Savior and believe Him. And then it is important to obey and it is important to live holy, but that doesn't procure your relationship with God or your answer to prayer. But it keeps the devil out of your life. It shuts the door on the devil. It keeps your heart sensitive to God. Another way of saying this is that living a holy life doesn't make God love you, but it will make you love God. It doesn't affect God's attitude towards you, but it affects your attitude towards God. So I do believe in living a holy life. I do live a holy life, and I emphasize it, but not for the purpose of having relationship with God. And look at this in verse 15, "...because the law works wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression." If you are trying to keep these set of rules and do all of these things in order to have God pleased with you, you will never feel the pleasure of God. The law works wrath. The law releases the wrath of God, the knowledge of God's hatred for sin. It makes you guilty before God. It brings you into condemnation. It focuses your attention upon sin. The law was given to kill, not to give life. It was given to show you how far short of relationship with God you are instead of how close to it you are. Man, those are big statements. And where no law is, there is no transgression. The law has been removed from us. God is not seeing you as a transgressor. That doesn't mean that everything is now lawful. Paul even talked about this. He says, technically, I could go live anyway, but it's not expedient for me because it opens up a door to the devil. And it's just stupid to give someone who said that he came to steal, kill, and to destroy. It's stupid for you to live in sin and just give your enemy that kind of an inroad into your life. But I'm saying that God loves you, stupid, man, in spite of what you've done. So look at this next verse. Romans chapter 4 verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. So this verse is saying that the reason God set it up that we have relationship with him by grace is so that everybody could have access to him. Not only those who are living by the law and living a holy life, but even those of you who've missed it so terribly. God loves you. Again, I know that there's many religious people right now very upset at me thinking that I'm advocating and promoting sin. That's not what I'm saying. In the scriptures, Jesus reached out to a woman taken in the very act of adultery and gave forgiveness to her. And he extended mercy. And that's over in, I believe, John chapter 7. I believe is where it is. It could be John chapter 8. But this woman was taken in the very act of adultery and thrown at Jesus' feet. And the religious people, the law, the legalist, said that the law commands that this woman be put to death. What do you say? And Jesus just wrote on the ground. He said, He that's without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. He didn't say that what she did wasn't sin. He didn't say it's okay to go commit adultery. He just said, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. And of course, none of them were without sin. And so they all walked away. And as they walked away, Jesus turned to the woman and he says, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned you? And she said, no man, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus called it sin, what she had done. So he didn't approve of it. He didn't say it's okay. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what grace says. But Jesus said, I'm not going to condemn you either. Go and sin no more. He told her to quit doing it, but he extended mercy towards her. And you know what? This is what I'm trying to get across. This is what these verses are saying. The Lord set it up that you have relationship with him by grace so that everybody, the religious people who've lived a relatively good life, the people who've been in terrible sin, Anybody could have relationship with God if you would just humble yourself, admit that you're a sinner, and say, God, save me from my sins. Receive that forgiveness. Then the Lord could minister this forgiveness to you. And the next verse says, in verse 17, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before whom whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. I'm going to refrain from teaching what I normally teach through these passages of Scripture, and I'm going to take it in context and relate it directly to having justification or righteousness with God by faith, which is the point that Paul was making. And so what he's doing here, he's talking about how Abraham believed God and his faith is what made him righteous in the sight of God. And, and then in verse 18, it gives you an example of how he did this. It says, "...who against hope... Believed in hope. This is talking about that when the Lord appeared to Abraham in the 18th chapter of Genesis and told him that Sarah would have a child in the next year. At that time, Abraham was 99 years old and Sarah was 90. And so in the natural, there was no hope. And so it was against all hope. And yet Abraham believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken so shall thy seed be. And that's referring back to Genesis chapter 15 where God said, if you can count the stars in the sky, so shall your seed be. So Abraham was looking on the word that God had promised him. And in verse 19 it says, And be not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now this is really significant because the reason it's bringing this out is to say that Abraham, he didn't trust in himself. Abraham didn't enter into this promise. He got off track for a while and he tried to actually accomplish this through uh, Hagar, Sarah's maid, and he had a relationship with her and had an Ishmael. And so Abraham got off track, but he came back and when the Lord appeared to him in the 18th chapter of Genesis, the Lord spoke to him that Sarah was going to have a child and when that happened, that's what this is talking about, he wasn't weak in faith. He considered not his own body now dead when he was nearly a hundred years old and Sarah when she was nearly ninety or ninety-one. And the, the significance of this in our relationship with the Lord is that Abraham didn't try and bring the promise of God to pass through his own ability if you consider your own body, if you think that you have to produce these promises of God, and if you have to do something to make the things of God come to pass, then what you're going to produce is an Ishmael instead of an Isaac. See, Ishmael was the work of the flesh. The works of the flesh will never put you in right standing with God. So all of this, what it means to us, is that when you are trying to do things, to earn God's favor, to make yourself accepted, and usable in his sight, then that is a work of the flesh. It will never, never obtain the desired result. And that's what all of this is talking about. Abraham, when the promise came to him about having a son when he was a hundred years old, he didn't even consider himself. The word consider means to think, consider, ponder, deliberate. Abraham didn't even focus on himself. I'm just praying that you can understand what I'm saying. You can get to a place to where it's all about God and His ability and His promise and not about yourself. The reason Abraham was able to not consider himself and just rest in the promises of God is because he had put faith in what God said. Matter of fact, let me just read some of these other verses. It says in verse 20, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, Unbelief comes through considering yourself, having a feeling that you've got to produce on your own. It says, but he was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Abraham was uh, was uh, fully persuaded that God was able to pull it off. It wasn't him. He wasn't putting faith in himself. He was putting faith in God and what he had said. And this is what we're talking about. The way to have a relationship with God is you've got to be fully persuaded of what Jesus did. Put faith in Him and you have a relationship with God based on Jesus and not based on yourself. And so look at these verses at the very end of Romans chapter 4. In verse 23 it says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed unto him. This is talking about Abraham And then in verse 24, "...but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification." And so this is kind of a summary of these first four chapters. He's been talking about that it's all by grace. This is how you access the power of God and everything that Jesus did for us. It all comes by grace and all of these things were written specifically about Abraham right here were written to show us that Abraham was made righteous in the sight of God because of what he believed, not because of how he acted. And it was written so that we could learn by this and we could receive the same justification by faith and not based on our performance. And then in chapter 5, it says, Therefore, and the word therefore always links this statement to what was said previously. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is contrasted with the way that most religious people believe that you have a relationship with God. They are taught that it's all based on your performance. And if you do everything well, then God will be pleased with you and He will bless you and He will answer your prayers and things will go well. But if you mess up, God is going to judge you. God is going to punish you. But this is making the point that it's being justified by faith is how you have peace with God. Let me just insert here that the only way to have peace with God is by faith through grace. You cannot do it based on your performance. There is zero peace in a person's life who feels that they have to perform and earn the blessing of God. Boy, that's a mouthful that I said right there. And there's people all over this world right now that what I'm saying, if you could receive it, this would totally, totally change. This is the gospel This is what releases the power of God in your life, is understanding the goodness of God and how that Jesus knew you couldn't live up to it and so He lived up to it. He lived wholly for your benefit and He took all of your sins and gave you all of His righteousness and all you've got to do is accept it by faith. It's not based on your performance. If you can understand that, then it would cause you to have peace with God. And look in verse 2, it says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Boy, this is a pivotal passage of Scripture also because it says you have access. The word access here, the Greek word is actually the same word that we get our English word admission from. Like if you go to a movie, you have to buy a ticket. You have to pay an admission fee in order to get in and see that. The way you get into the kingdom of God, the way you get into this grace is by faith. By faith, you have access into this grace. Now, I could spend literally weeks on this one point. I'm not going to do it because I want to move on through the book of Romans. But this is a powerful truth that most people don't understand. I've got a teaching entitled Living in the Balance of Grace and Faith. I've got it in DVD, CD, and in book form. You can uh, get it. You can go to our website and find it. And it would go into more uh, more explanation on this. But the grace of God is consistent towards every single person. If it wasn't, then it wouldn't be grace. The word grace means unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor and ability from God. And if it's unearned, undeserved, then it has to be the same towards every single person. Whether you're good, bad, it wouldn't be grace if it was tied to your performance. So by grace, God has already done all of these things. By grace, God has already dealt with the sins of the entire world. And some people will take that kind of a truth right there and say, therefore, there is no need for people to be born again. There is no such thing as hell, that everybody has a right stand with God. And they will take certain passages of Scripture that talk about that, like First John chapter 2, verse 2, that He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And they will talk about grace and say that everybody's sins are dealt with. Everybody's already born again. Everybody's already in right standing. Therefore, there is no good and bad. Doesn't matter what you do, etc. And that's wrong. And here is the reason why that's wrong. Because you only access, you only gain admission to the grace of God through faith a person who doesn't believe that Jesus has taken their sins, that doesn't make Jesus their Lord, that doesn't accept what He's done by faith, then this grace, it is true that by grace, God has already touched them and dealt with everything, but they won't experience it until they access it by faith. Grace is God's part. Faith is our part. Not performance, not works, not you doing everything just right, but believing and receiving, trusting in what Jesus has done. And you know what? There are not a lot of people that have put faith in what Jesus has done. And here's a radical statement, but there's even a lot of people that call themselves Christians who haven't put faith in what Jesus has done. They just acknowledge the Christian God. They acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. They might even say that He came and He died for our sins and that He forgave our sins but if you were to back them into a corner and says, what makes you have peace with God? They would point to themselves. They would point to their holiness, to their goodness and say, it's because I'm a good person and I believe that my good is going to outweigh my bad. And you know what? That's not putting faith in God's grace. That's putting faith in yourself. The kingdom of heaven, the only currency that will work is faith in what Jesus has already done for you, putting faith in the grace of God and not faith in yourself and in your own goodness. Those are radical truths that come as a surprise to not only people that don't believe, but even some people who call themselves Christians have not really understood the gospel. But it's only by faith that you have peace with God. It's only by faith that you gain access to the grace of God. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, it says... Well, let me just back up. In verse 2, the end of that sentence says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then in verse 3, it says, and not only so... In other words, we don't only rejoice in hope of the glory of God, all of these awesome things about God, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulations worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope... And hope maketh not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. These verses right here as well as a few verses in James chapter 1 are often taken out of context and used to say that if you really want to grow in your relationship with God, then God is going to send you tribulations, problems, and all of these things. And through the things that you suffer, you will become a better person. And that is not what these verses are saying. Again, if you were to read this without having been prejudiced by teaching on this, and if you were to just read these verses at face value, it would be easy to see that that is not what this is saying. Especially over in the book of James, like I was saying, these verses are saying a very similar thing here. And in the book of James it says, uh, you know what, I better turn over here and read this. I'm going to mess this up if I don't. Let me just read this again. In James chapter 1, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And people will use this to say that if you want to be perfect, then you've got to have tribulation, because tribulation worketh patience. But right here in this very chapter, in James chapter 1, in verse 13, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. <clears throat> Excuse me. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And so, in this very passage of scripture right here, it shows you it's not God sending these temptations and trials and tribulations. It goes on to say, Do not err, my beloved brethren, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In other words, it says that God is the one who sends the good things, not these evil things. And yet these verses in James and also over here in Romans chapter 5 have been twisted by people to say... That if you really want to grow, if you really want to be perfect, then you got to have tribulation. Because tribulation works patience. Patience, experience, and experience hope. I will say this, that as we go through life, and as you encounter the devil and problems, and then you draw on the faith and the things that God has taught you, it makes you stronger. But God isn't the one sending those things. And this is how religion has perverted this. It is true that as you use the faith that you've got, you're going to be stronger by using it. You know, I've been walking with the Lord for 45 years. I've been born again for 55 years, but I've been really seeking the Lord for 45 years, and I've had the devil fight me. I've had him come against me. I've used my faith, and today I'm stronger than I was 45 years ago. Not because I necessarily believe things differently, but I have put my faith to the test. I've used it. I'm stronger. I'm more confident. I've got an assurance that comes through experience, and I believe I'm better off because of it. But God did not send the problems in my life to give me this confidence and this assurance. And if you think that He did, then it just renders you passive. I've actually had people before say that you shouldn't fight against these things. God did this to make you better. That's not true. You know, if you really believe that God is one that put cancer in your life, gave you some kind of a heart problem or something to make you a better person, well, then why do you go to the doctor and try and get out of His will? Why don't you let patience have its perfect work? Why don't you just let the thing run over you? See, that's the logic and it has rendered a lot of Christians passive and they just are allowing the devil to run over them and steal, kill, and destroy. Also in Mark chapter 4, I believe it's verse eighteen, seventeen, 17 or 18, it says that afflictions and persecutions come for the word's sake to steal the word from you. They aren't sent to make you better. But it's true that if you fight through your doubt and unbelief and temptations and problems that you have, you're going to be a better person. But don't think that God sent it. You know, here's an illustration that I got drafted. I went to Vietnam. And before I went to Vietnam, they taught me how to be a soldier. They taught me how to shoot a gun. They taught me how to throw a hand grenade. They taught us how to do all these different things. And, but you know, when you first get to Vietnam, a person who has only had just knowledge instilled in them, but they've never put it to practice, they're dangerous. And this is just an attitude that we had towards people. There is a difference between people that have just been taught in a book how to do something versus people that have been out in a real firefight And if you live through it, I guarantee you, you have now a new appreciation, a new understanding and application of that knowledge that you didn't have before. So I use that to illustrate that, see, in a similar way, It's one thing to just learn stuff through the Word of God, but then life is going to present you with challenges. Satan is going to come to try and steal, kill, and to destroy you. And as you apply the things that you've learned and gain these experiences, there is no doubt you're going to be better off for it. But you can't embrace those problems as being from God. That would be like in Vietnam, us having the Vietnamese attack us and we run out and just want to hug them oh, thank you for coming and trying to kill me because you're going to make me a better soldier. It is true that if you use your training and if you fight and if you win, you will be a better soldier, but only if you recognize that that person is the enemy and you fight against them and overcome them. If you go out and try to embrace them, they're going to kill you. Likewise, a Christian should recognize that you are going to be better off as you begin to start having these things problems come at you and you use your faith and overcome them. But don't ever embrace that problem. Don't ever think that God sent that problem. That makes you passive towards that problem. And James chapter 4 verse 7 says that you have to resist the devil and he will flee from you. The word resist means to actively fight against. So it's only going to work out for your good if you resist and apply these things. So anyway, I spent more time on that than I wanted to. But that's important that people don't misunderstand this. This is just saying that Paul wasn't only rejoicing in hope of the glory of God, thinking about heaven, but even in this life, even with all of its problems and an enemy that's coming against us, he was glorying in tribulation because he knew he was going to use his faith. He would overcome. It would become a testimony. It would work out to his good, and it makes hope abound in your heart. And then in verse 5, it says, And hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Again, this, there, these verses are just pregnant with so many things. This is powerful. I could spend an hour or two on this, but let me just say that we're receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes many things, but it includes speaking in tongues. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the greatest thing you could ever do for you receiving and understanding the love of God. It says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. When I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'd already been born again for 10 years. But when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it was just a powerful release of the love of God in my life. Uh, Charles Finney described it this way, that it was like waves of liquid love just flowing over him. And you know, that's very similar to what I experienced. And I've seen this happen to thousands and thousands of people that I've ministered to and led into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you receive the Holy Spirit and this gift of speaking in tongues, that's not the only gift, but it's an immediate thing that is supposed to follow and it's so dramatic, it's different, it's just one of the ways that you know that you've received the Holy Spirit. And when you receive that, I tell you the love of God just explodes in your life. The Holy Spirit is sent to release the love of God in your life. It's one thing to just have an intellectual knowledge and say, well, I believe that God loves me, but then to experience it. And to feel like you are the object of God's love. I tell you, that's, a, that's the most awesome thing that there ever is. And that comes through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I've got a teaching on this. I, I've got a, a book entitled The New You Slash Holy Spirit that we send out to all the people who get born again or receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it explains this in more detail. But speaking in tongues is one of the greatest ways to be led by God, to get revelation to have the Holy Spirit move in your life. It's a way of edifying yourself is what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It builds you up. It promotes spiritual growth. It is a weapon against the devil. It is praise uh, to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 17. There's just a lot of things that it does, but according to this verse, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this gift of speaking in tongues is one of the most important things to just let the love of God flow in your life. And I tell you, that's what it's all about. You need that. That is powerful. And then in verse 6, he says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Did you know that Jesus died for ungodly people? I could even say it this way. The only people he died for are ungodly people. And if you're offended by that and say, Well, I'm not ungodly. And therefore you're offended Well, then I'm not sure that you can receive from God because the truth is all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you are under the deception of thinking that you're holy enough and that God somehow or another owes you something because you've lived a holy life and you'd say, well, I'm not ungodly. Well, then Jesus didn't die for you. He only died for the ungodly. In verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Unless you're willing to admit that you're ungodly, unless you're willing to admit that you're a sinner, unless you're willing to admit that you cannot save yourself, then you cannot receive from Jesus. You can't access God through Jesus. He only died for the ungodly. He only died for sinners. He commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, I heard a woman one time give a testimony on television and she was a very wealthy woman, millionaire. She was a socialite. She was beautiful. She just, you know, everything in her life was perfect. And they were asking her about her conversion. And she says, I wasn't like these people that were on dope or on uh, alcohol or had marital problems or that was poor or anything like this. She says, my life was perfect. She says, everything about me was just perfect. And Jesus just is like the icing on the cake. He was just the sauce on the spaghetti. He just added another dimension to my life. And you know, when I heard her say that, I thought, I'm not sure you're truly born again. Because I guarantee you, Jesus isn't just making up, you know, 1%. You're 99% good on your own and He just makes up the little bit that you fall short. Unless you're willing to admit that you're ungodly, unless you're willing to come to God as a sinner... And some of you think, but I'm not as bad a sinner as somebody else. Again, all of sin comes short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. The glory of God is Jesus. And if you aren't as perfect as Jesus, then you need a Savior. You can't just have a partial benefit. He doesn't just make up what you fell short. You either have to put your total faith in what Jesus and stand on what He did for you, or you have to put your faith in yourself, but you cannot mix the two. These are powerful statements right here. But if you go back and put all of this in its context, Paul had said we have access to this grace through faith. And then he says we we glory in the things of God, not only in the good things about eternity and what's waiting for us, but we glory in God even in tribulation, knowing that we're going to be stronger as we put our faith to work. And then so he's been building up to this. And he's making a point to say that, if God commended His love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, now much more now being justified by faith, we should be saved from wrath through him. See that's verse nine, and if you just take this verse out of context and say that God loves a sinner, you are missing the real point that he's trying to do it's It is a truth it He did say that, but it was a stepping stone to an even greater truth. And that greater truth is in verse 9. Much more then. If God loved you enough to die for you while you were yet a sinner, then much more now that you are a born-again Christian does God love you. Now that ought to be so simple. And yet, did you know religion has again perverted this and changed it so that in a real functional sense, most Christians believe God loves you less now that you're born again than He did before you were born again. Let me use this illustration. You know, if a person was to come into one of our church services and if the person was drunk or high on drugs or, you know, something like that, and it was just obvious that they didn't know the Lord, did you know that the average Christian would go up to that person and minister grace to them and say, look, God loves you. God could change your life. You can be delivered from this alcoholism. You could be set free from drugs, from this addiction. And they would tell a lost person about the goodness and the mercy of God and tell them that they could be saved. But if that person responds and prays with them and say, joins the church, and then they come back next Sunday and they're drunk again, or they're high on drugs again. Did you know that the same people who would have gone up and have told a lost man about how God loves them, now that this person professes to be a Christian, the same Christian would come up and say, God's angry at you, God's not going to answer your prayer, God's not going to bless you. And they would actually minister condemnation and rejection to them if they're a christian because functionally most people believe that god is merciful to the sinner but he's hard on the christian and yet this is saying just the opposite read it in its context it says but god commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us much more than see it's a comparison to what he's doing if you could accept the love of God while you were a sinner much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. So, if you could accept that God loved you as a sinner, why can't you accept much more now that He loves you as a Christian? The reason most Christians don't experience that is because of religion that has tied God's love to their performance. And now they are convicted over things that they weren't even convicted of before. Now, isn't this weird? That here you could receive salvation when you were an adulterer, when you were a liar, when you were a thief, but you can't receive healing now that you are living an infinitely better life, but you now just didn't read your Bible. You got mad and had an argument on the way to church, and that's liable to cause God to let you die of cancer. Can you see that that's not equitable That's not much more now the grace of God is operating in your life. It's much less. It says in Colossians 2, verse 6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. That means that if you receive salvation by grace, not based on your performance, but instead you just put faith in a Savior. If you received it by grace, that's the way that you ought to continue to walk by grace. But religion again and you know there's all varying degrees of religion there's a lot of religion that just preaches that uh god just evaluates you based on whether you're good outweighs your bad and you don't even need a savior and they are just preaching nothing but performance based and of course that is completely wrong but then there's a certain segment of religion they will preach that, oh yeah, you need a Savior to get saved, to be born again. You can't save yourself. But then once you get saved, now you maintain your relationship with God and get your prayers answered based on how good and how holy you are. That's a mixture of law and grace. And that perverts it. It pollutes the whole thing. But this is saying... That if you got saved by grace, then how much more now that you are saved should the grace of God abound towards you? If God's grace abounded towards you in that while you were yet a sinner, He died for you. Much more now should you accept the love of God. But sad to say because most people have been indoctrinated by religion Most Christians functionally believe that God loved them more and was more merciful to their sin and unrighteousness before they got saved than He is after they get saved. And that's not what these verses are saying. Man, that's a powerful truth. You know, in my services, I invite people to come forward and receive salvation. And if I was praying for a person to receive salvation, and if I had a word of knowledge and God showed me that you just committed adultery, you just came from committing adultery, You're an adulterer. What makes you think God would save you? You know, if I was to relate to a person that way, if they really understood the gospel, that wouldn't keep them from getting saved. Instead, they'd say, that's the reason I need a Savior. Man, I have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they would go ahead and cry out to God and they would be saved even in the midst of sin. But, If another person comes up and I was going to pray for them and God showed me that you had an argument with your wife on the way to church, what makes you think God would ever answer your prayer? Did you know that the average Christian would just totally cave with something like that and think, now I know why God's not moving in my life because I haven't done this. I've made a mistake here. If you would have had that same attitude when it came to receiving the forgiveness of your sins, you'd have never been born again because every one of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet that didn't stop you from receiving salvation. That's the greatest miracle that any person could ever receive. Being healed, seeing a person raised from the dead, blind eyes open. that is relatively small compared to the miracle of seeing a person born again. And if you could receive this greatest miracle of them all in the midst of your failure and in the midst of your sin, just because you cried out for the mercy of God and you received it by faith, if that could happen while you were living in your sin, how much more now that you are a Christian should you be able to believe for the goodness of God in your life? And yet, sadly, with many people, it's much less. They are more condemned now that they are a Christian than they were before they were a Christian. And it's because of the influence of religion. So that's what verses 8 and 9 say. And then in verse 10, he puts these two thoughts into one verse and, and makes this comparison again. Verse 10, he says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So it just makes it very clear in that verse If when you were an enemy, if Jesus died for his enemies, think what he will do for you now that you are his friend. You may not be doing a good job. You may still be falling short, but you are a friend. You're a family member. You have been born again. You are a son of God or a daughter of God. How much more does God love you now? You came to God by faith in his grace. And you need to maintain that same thing. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. You need to continue the same way. But see, this is the very reason that a lot of Christians, people who really have made Jesus their Lord, and if they were to die, they would go straight into the presence of God because they have it down pat. They believe that their sins were forgiven, that they are a Christian based on what Jesus did for them and not what they've done. But when it comes to maintenance, walking out the everyday life, the average Christian has gotten caught up in all of this performance, feeling like I've got to be worthy and I've got to earn this. And that is completely opposite of what these verses are saying. In verse 11, it says, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Man, I could spend an hour on that. But again, most of religion puts salvation and all of the benefits of salvation off in the future. When we all get to heaven, what a day that's going to be. But this says we have now received the atonement. To the degree that you can believe and trust God, you can receive things that religion is teaching are just reserved for eternity. You can receive them here in this life. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't have to wait until heaven to experience heaven. We can experience heaven here to the degree that we renew our mind and believe and trust in God. You don't have to wait until you get to heaven uh, until you're healed. Most people know that in heaven there's no more sickness, there's no more disease, there's no more sorrow, there's no more crying, there's no more pain. But did you know to the degree that you can believe God, you can be healed here. You can have your sickness go here. You can be relieved of pain here. You can overcome your sorrow and grief here. We have now received the atonement. This isn't just pie in the sky, by and by. But it's steak on the plate while you wait. Amen. And so you can have benefit right here in this life. In verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So this is saying that you became a sinner, not because of what you did, but you inherited a sin nature from Adam. And then he has a parenthetical phrase here that... uh, Again, this is hard for me to say without going into a lot of teaching, but in verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. What a radical verse is that. And I tell you, I'm just going to have to leave some of this or I'll teach on it. But if you didn't get this teaching on the true nature of God, I'd encourage you to get it because this would radically change the way that you understand God. Most people believe that God, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was an instant rejection, punishment separating them from His presence because God is holy and man became unholy and there is this huge gap in between. This says that until the law... This is referring to when God gave the law to Moses. That's approximately 2,000 years after the fall of Adam. Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. So until the law, sin wasn't imputed unto people. God wasn't holding people's sins against them. Instead of this holy God rejecting unholy man... God wasn't holding people's sins against them for the first 2,000 years after Adam's sin. That is a radical, different concept than what religion is teaching. He did drive Adam and Eve out of the garden, but it says it was so that they would need of the tree of life and live forever. It wasn't because of rejection. And in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, you can find that God is still walking and talking and fellowshipping with men. After the fall. And it says in Genesis chapter 4 verse 16 that Cain went out from the presence of God. You can't leave something that you didn't have. God's presence was still with man. He just drove them out of the garden because He didn't want them living forever in a sinful, corrupted body. And I could spend an hour talking about why that is, but it was actually a statement of love. God provided something better than living forever in a sinful, fallen world subject to sickness and disease, etc., but unable to die. God provided something better. Death is actually a blessing for fallen human beings because we are going to receive a glorified body and a glorified soulish realm where we know all things. And there's something better than living forever in this sinful state. And so God drove man out of the garden not to separate him from his presence, but to sow that they wouldn't eat of that tree of life and live forever. And he was still dealing with mankind in mercy. And again, I could, I could teach on that for hours. But what a radical statement is that? Now, if this is so, and if God wasn't imputing people's sins unto them, people say, well, then why did people die? In the next verse it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. In other words, the people who sinned after Adam didn't sin in exactly the same way that Adam did. They were a sinner by nature. But Adam, it was his nature to be like God. His was total rebellion. His was total rejection of God. I mean, it was high treason on Adam's part. And the people after him didn't sin in exactly the same way because it was their nature to sin. But with Adam, it was just total high treason and rebellion against God. Well, now, if God wasn't imputing their sins unto him, then why did people die? And here is my attempt to try and explain this, that there is not only a vertical effect of sin, but there's like a horizontal effect of sin. The vertical effect is talking about God's viewpoint and dealing with you based on your sin and prior to the law god wasn't releasing his judgment and power his punishment upon sin he was operating in mercy he wasn't imputing man's sins unto him but sin also had this horizontal effect and that's what i'm referring to that there are consequences to your sins in romans chapter 6 verse 16 it says know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. The Bible reveals that when you yield yourself to sin, you yield yourself to death, to Satan, the author of that sin, and the death that comes as a result. So even though God wasn't bringing his judgment, this vertical effect of sin wasn't being implemented prior to the law, sin still was having this horizontal effect. It was an open door to the devil to come into your life. And he came to steal, kill, and to destroy. John chapter 10, verse 10. So even though God wasn't bringing punishment upon sin, prior to the law, sin was still destroying the human race because it was an open door to the devil, this horizontal effect. And so God had to do something To restrain sin. Because sin was destroying the human race. People were still dying. And sin was destroying the human race. So God finally gave the law. And with the law came death. I've already talked about some of these things. But over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It calls the law administration of death. And administration of condemnation. The law brought death. It made sin come alive. We're going to talk about that in Romans chapter 7. And on and on it goes. The law accomplished something good, and that was that it showed that God, in a sense, people had taken God's lack of punishment upon sin as God didn't care about it. It didn't matter to God. And so they begin to compare themselves among themselves like Cain killed his brother, and instead of God punishing him and killing him, God put a mark in him and said, if anybody touches Cain, I'll avenge him sevenfold. God actually uh, protected the first murderer on the face of the earth. And so because of that, Cain's great-great-great-grandson, who was named Lamech, he came along and he killed a man, and his was in self-defense. So he felt like it was more justified than Cain's. And he said, if God is going to avenge Cain sevenfold, he'll avenge Lamech seventy and sevenfold. But God didn't say that. Lamech said it. Lamech was comparing himself with his great-great-great-grandfather and he said, Cain got by with murder. Surely I'm going to get by with murder. And he didn't understand that murder was really wrong because God didn't punish Cain. Instead, he protected him. Because God wasn't imputing people's sins unto him, people began to think it's okay to just go live in a sin. And they didn't realize that they were letting Satan in and Satan was destroying the human race. Adam lived to be nine hundred and sixty years old. Methuselah lived to be nine hundred and sixty-nine years old. But as sin began to start, you know, spreading in the human race, and they began to start living worse and worse and worse, man's lifespan came down to where Adam, or it's not Adam, but Abraham, who was considered an old old man, was hundred and seventy-five years old, and that was old. Whereas Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. Can you see what sin was doing to the human race? It was destroying it. Not because God was punishing it. Uh, Abraham was still living before the law and God wasn't imputing man's sins unto them. And yet man's lifespan had decreased to about, I don't know, just a fraction of what it used to be. Because even though God wasn't bringing His judgment on sin, sin was an open door to the devil. And so... He's saying here that you became a sinner through what Adam did. And likewise, you become righteous through what Jesus did. God wasn't imputing people's sins unto them, but sin was destroying them. God had to give a revelation of how devastating sin was and show His wrath and His punishment. He had to start punishing our sin. And it had the positive benefit of making us think, oh man, if this is what God is saying, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It made us quit trusting in ourselves and quit comparing ourselves with other people. And we instead started comparing ourselves with the holy standard that God gave. But the side effects to the law were condemnation, guilt, these terrible, terrible things. And praise God, we now have an antidote in the gospel that you don't need the law with all of its side effects, and so in verse fifteen he begins to make these comparisons and he makes these comparisons all the way down to the end of this chapter and let me just say this that you know i let me give you a testimony that I was in the Baptist Church. I was taught that I was a sinner, that all of my righteousness is like filthy rags. I think that's Isaiah chapter 64, that there is none righteous, no, not one, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Man, I had those things down pat. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I was unworthy and I knew I was ungodly and I had accepted that 100%. And after I'd had this experience where God showed me His love, I now knew that God loved me and I I knew it wasn't based on my performance but I couldn't harmonize that with Scripture because the only Scriptures I'd been shown was the Old Testament law that made you condemned and guilty. I didn't understand the New Testament gospel and grace. And after I got out of Vietnam, I received this baptism of the Holy Spirit, started speaking in tongues and I started exploring and trying out some new things. And I went to a Bible study that a woman was holding. And again, many of you aren't going to fully understand the conflict that was going on on the inside of me because you weren't raised with my prejudice. But I was taught that a woman could not teach men anything. A woman could teach little children, male children, but a woman couldn't teach a man. That's a misapplication of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so anyway, I went to a Bible study. It was led by a woman. So in the very first place, I was offended. I had a chip on my shoulder, and I was upset when I went in there. And then they were all praying in tongues, which I had come to believe that that was real. I was praying for it, but I hadn't yet done it. But that was weird to me, so that was another thing. And then the thing that really got me, there were long-haired hippies. In there, and you got to remember this would have been back about nineteen seventy one and it was in the midst of the hippie movement, and that was associated with being totally ungodly and In the Baptist Church that I grew up in, if a man's hair touched their collar, you go straight to hell. you don't collect two hundred dollars, you don't you just go to hell if your hair touched your collar. As a man. And so I was offended by a woman leading the Bible study. I was skeptical of the speaking in tongues. And then here were these hippies that were there and they were professing to be believers. But I just tried to operate in grace and mercy and I didn't say anything. But some of these hippies got to talking about that they were righteous. That they were the righteousness of God in Christ. And you know what? I could have handled it if they would have just said, man, we're just total sinners and we're just here checking this out. But for a hippie to present himself as being righteous, this just got all over my religious training. And I remember in the midst of this Bible study, one of these guys was quoting a scripture that he was the righteousness of God. And man, I stood up and I whooped out my three scriptures. There is none righteous, no not one, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. All of our righteousness is his filthy rags. And I just rebuked this guy and put him in his place, that man, how dare him claim that he's righteous? He's a hippie, he's got long hair. there's nothing good in him. <laughs> and you know, what changed my life was instead of these guys getting mad, which I was, I was braced. I was expecting them to just respond in kind and just yell at me and for there to be a you know, a big conflict here. Instead, they responded in mercy and in love, and they were kind towards me. And they, they said, we understand why you say that, where you're coming from, but here's what the Bible says. And for every one scripture that I had used, they had ten scriptures to show that they were righteous. And it just totally, totally knocked me off balance. Man, I I couldn't understand them operating in love. You know, the Bible says, Jesus said in John chapter 13, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. And I saw the love of God in these guys. How could they do this? How could a hippie have the love of God in them? Man, this was contrary to my religious training. So that got me. And then the scriptures that they used, it made sense. It was what the Bible said and yet it was different than what I'd been taught. And this just caused a huge conflict on the inside of me. So I left that Bible study and I went out and bought a Young's Analytical Concordance. And I looked up every time in the Bible that the word righteous, righteousness, righteousness says was used. And there's thousands of them. And I looked up every verse. I spent five days and I fasted and prayed for five days and spent 15 hours a day studying the Word, looking up righteousness. And at the end of those five days, I was convinced intellectually that I was the righteousness of God, even though it went against everything that I'd ever been taught. But when I got born again, I became righteous through what Jesus did. I saw it, but it was hard for me to embrace And these verses in Romans chapter 5 were like the last straw. I had seen it. I had been studying for five days, praying and fasting, and I saw it in Scripture. But these verses are what just totally convinced me that I was righteous. And again, I could minister on this for weeks. This has changed my life, these passages. But let me just summarize First of all, what he basically does is say that in the same way that you believe you were born a sinner, not because you had sinned, but you were born a sinner. It was your nature. In the same way as you accept that, here's the other side of the coin that when you get born again, you are born righteous. Not because you've done everything right, but just because you were born righteous. It's your nature. You inherited a sin nature when you were born with your natural birth. When you get born again with your spiritual birth, you inherit a godly, righteous nature. And see, I had totally accepted one side of that equation, but I just couldn't bring myself to say that I was righteous. But if I was going to be honest with Scripture, and I looked up every Scripture in the Bible on the word righteous, I had to accept that when I got born again, I became righteous. And these verses are the ones that convince me of that. So going back to Romans chapter 5, verse 15. This is Old English, the way that it's stating it. It's a little awkward, but it's just basically making a contrast here. It says, "...but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many. Now this is a radical statement right here that a lot of people don't understand, but it says, if through the offense of one, this is talking about Adam, through Adam's offense, many were dead. Now this doesn't mean talking about dead in the sense that a body dies and you're no longer alive. But the Bible says that the day that Adam ate of the fruit, he died that day. His body didn't physically die until 960 years later, but he was separated from God. In the Bible, death means separation, not ceasing to exist. You know, we say things from a human standpoint, and when we talk about a person being dead, we just think, well, they're gone. They don't exist anymore. That's not true. Death, all it is, is the separation of your spirit and soul from your body. Death always is talking about separation. When it's talking about spiritual death, it means that the moment that Adam died, the moment that he sinned, he was separated from God, and now every person who has been born as a result of Adam, which is every person, has been born with this spirit that was separated from God. It was no longer infused with the life the way that Adam was. And so we were born with a sin nature, separated from God. That happened through Adam. And in the same way, it says, "...much more the grace of God and the gift by grace which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many." So if you can accept that you became a sinner through Adam, then to be consistent with these verses, and he says this five different times, same thing, just repeated in five different ways... In the same way, you're going to have to, to, to be consistent, you're going to have to say that you were born again righteous. Much more. If you accepted a sin nature, not because of what you did, it was just, it was born in you. Well, when you get born again, you are also made righteous. See, the problem that I had with righteousness, and I think most people do that haven't gotten this revelation, they think that it's not fair. I'm not righteous. How could God just declare me righteous? I thought God is holy and just. How can God do this? The problem that you're having is, see, you're looking at your physical actions and your thoughts up here in your soul. But God is a spirit, John four twenty four, And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And when you get born again, you become a new person in your spirit. 2 Corinthians five seventeen says, If any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. In your spirit is the part of you that is changed. And in your spirit, you have had this righteousness of God imputed unto you. Just put to your account. You don't deserve it. It's separate from your actions. It's separate from your thoughts. The only thing that you had to contribute was first of all your sin. You had to be a sinner in order to be eligible And then you had to just put faith in what Jesus did. And then all of God's righteousness and holiness becomes yours. Let me just jump ahead for a second over here in Romans chapter 8. It says as a result of what Jesus did in verse 4 that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. That's not talking about that... You become righteous if you do everything right. It's talking about through the Spirit. When you got born again, the righteousness of the law, God's perfect righteousness, perfect holiness was placed on the inside of you. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 says, "...put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness." You don't become righteous as you improve your actions and as you do more good things. You are born again righteous. You are created righteous. And that's what this is talking about. In the same way that you were born a sinner, when you get born again, you are born again righteous. Man, I don't know about you, but that just lights my fire. That is awesome. I totally accepted one side And I finally came around to the place where if one side is true, then the other side is true. And I had to accept what this said. It says the same thing again uh, in verse 16. It says, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Adam sinned once and made every person who's ever been born on this planet a sinner and condemned. Now we have many offenses and Jesus, one gift, completely atoned for all of the sins. One one act made everybody a sinner and one act made every person who would receive it now the righteousness and in right standing with God. Man, that's powerful. I tell you, this is powerful if you understand what this is saying. This just ought to take care of your condemnation, your guilt, if you could understand and believe the gospel. In verse 17, it says the same thing again. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one... That's talking about Adam. ...much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ... Notice that this says it's a gift of righteousness. Righteousness is not something that you earn. It's not based on your performance. It's a gift. It was provided by Jesus and it's offered unto you if you will just trust Him and receive Him as your Savior. Man, that is powerful. And again, this is so contrary to the way most people think. Most people think, but I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. It's a gift. You know, I've taken people out to eat before, and I just want to bless them. And so I give it to them. And it's not unusual to have people say, well, next time I'm buying. You know what that is? They didn't really receive it as a gift. They feel like that, you know, now they're indebted to you, and they've got to balance the ledger, and somehow or another they've got to do something to get back to where, you know, they don't owe you anything. But see, if it's a real gift, you don't owe me anything. And people just have a hard time of understanding that God is offering right standing with him salvation, justification, deliverance as a gift. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to pay him back. But see, there's some people that just just can't receive something as a gift. And religion has made us to where we feel like, but I don't deserve to be righteous. This is saying it's a gift of righteousness. It's not what you deserve. You didn't deserve to be a sinner before you had ever done anything, before you ever sinned. A little baby is born a sinner with a dead spirit, a spirit that is separated from God. They have a sin nature. You don't have to teach little children to do evil. They just do it by nature. They're selfish. They will cry. They will wake up the whole family. You could bring a little baby into a church service And they don't care that there's 500 other people there. They'll sit there and cry, make noise. They're the center of the universe. It's the nature. You were born with a sin nature. A little child didn't deserve it. They were born with it. Likewise, you don't deserve the righteousness of God. But when you make Jesus your Lord, you are born again through Jesus' righteousness. You have His righteousness, not your own righteousness. Man, that is nearly too good to be true news. In the next verse, verse 18, it says it again. Therefore, as by the judgment, by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so the righteousness of one, the free gift, came upon all men unto justification of life. I'd already read that, but that's great to read again. In verse 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Here again, it's saying the same thing. You became a sinner through Adam, not through yourself. Now, you've confirmed that you have that sin nature. You've manifested it. You've acted on it. But you were born in sin. And that came through Adam. And it says, so as... In other words, if you're going to accept one side of this, you've got to accept the other side. in the same way, it says, "...by the obedience of one, many shall be made righteous." You aren't righteous because you obey everything and do it properly. You are righteous because Jesus obeyed God and you receive His righteousness as a gift. That's what that previous verse said. It's a gift for those who make Jesus their Lord. He gives you His righteousness, the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For He, speaking of God, hath made Him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I didn't receive just a little bit of righteousness, a little bit of goodness. In my born-again spirit, I have been made the righteousness of God. I am as holy and pure in my spirit as Jesus is. And if you're offended at that, it's because you aren't basing it on what Jesus has done. You're basing your knowledge on what you have done. And you know you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But praise God, I'm not getting what I deserve. I get what Jesus earned. And all I have to do is when I make Him my Lord, I become the righteousness of God in Him. Man, that is nearly too good to be true news. But that's what this is saying. Five different times, in five verses, he's making this comparison. If you became a sinner through what Adam did, then you become righteous through what Jesus did. All you had to do was be born into this natural world and you became a sinner. All you have to do is be born again by putting faith in what Jesus has done and you become righteous. You know, if you believe the Bible, I don't know how you could get around this. I don't know how you could deny this. I don't know how you could sit there and feel something is wrong for me to say I am the righteousness of God and you get offended thinking you aren't righteous, you aren't perfect. My physical flesh isn't, but in my born-again spirit, I am the righteousness of God. It's a shame, but there's a lot of people that just don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. They're going to believe it regardless of what the Bible says. But if you do honor the Bible, this ought to just put a nail in the coffin of that condemnation and guilt consciousness. And you ought to recognize that in Christ you are the righteousness of God. In verse 20 it says, Moreover the law entered that the offense might have abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Before the law was given, God wasn't imputing man's sins unto them, but people were taking God's lack of punishment upon sin as approval for sin, and so sin was just running rampant in the earth... It was destroying the length of people's lives. And if God hadn't have done something to restrain sin, then there wouldn't have been a virgin left for Jesus to have been born through. And so he gave the law, like it says right here, that the offense might abound. He didn't give the law to help you overcome sin, but to help sin overcome you, to make you so condemned and guilty that you would quit trying to be self-righteous and you would just receive salvation as a gift. But when that happened, when he made the law and we became so guilt conscious, it says where sin abound, grace did much more abound that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So in verse 21, it says sin reigned unto death. How did it reign unto death? Through the law. The law strengthened sin, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-six, and the end result of that sin was death. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Well, likewise, on the opposite direction... Grace now reigns through righteousness unto eternal life. Righteousness here is just talking about uh, right standing with God. Grace is the way that you get into this. You access grace by faith. That produces a faith righteousness and it, and it, uh, and it reaches unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life here isn't talking about just living forever in heaven. That may be the culmination of it. But in John chapter 17 verse 3, it says that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It's talking about relationship with God. And so the way that we have relationship with God is through understanding righteousness that comes by grace through faith. If you aren't having an intimate, powerful, awesome relationship with God, I can guarantee you, you are under the law and it's ruling unto death instead of being under grace, understanding your righteous position. That will cause the love of God to just be shed abroad in your heart. Boy, these are powerful truths. And I tell you, I... I just pray that somehow or another the Holy Spirit opens up your heart and helps you to understand this. I feel like I'm at a loss of how to communicate it properly. But this could transform your life. Grace abounds through righteousness unto eternal life, unto relationship with God. The Lord loves you, but you're going to have to understand grace You're going to have to understand that you became righteous by a gift, not by your own actions. And you're going to have to get away from basing your relationship with God on your own performance.